Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, college acceptance season is wrapping up when many students grapple with rejections and heightened scrutiny is on the fairness of the college admissions process. In a recent piece for The Atlantic, Richard Reeves takes aim at legacy admissions, or when preference is given to an applicant who is the relative of an alum. It codifies nepotism, according to Reeves, but he also says there's reason to believe the practice may finally be on its way out. Reeves joins us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Legacy preference is when college applicants get a leg up in the admissions process because they're the child or relative of an alum. It's been facing heightened scrutiny for some time now, and Richard Reeves believes the practice may be nearing its end. Amherst abandoned it last year. Johns Hopkins in 2014, among other schools. And a bill now moving through Congress would prohibit legacy applicants at universities that get federal money. So what do you think? Should college applicants be given preference in the admissions process if their family member attended the school? You can share your thoughts at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at KQED Forum. Or you can always email your thoughts at forum at kqed.org. Joining me now is Richard V. Reeves, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he directs the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. Welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, great to have you. And uh, you call the practice of legacy admissions in this country an American anachronism. 
And I'm just so curious why you find it so odd for the U.S. Well, if you haven't been able to tell already, I'm a, I'm a recovering Brit myself. <laughs> and so so it, so it is something, but I've had raised kids here. And so it is something you know, getting used to the whole college process being different in different countries. And and, and, and the reason why I think it's particularly anachronistic in, in America to have this hereditary principle operating is because, of course, America prides itself on being non-hereditary. I mean, one of the reasons why America exists in its current form is because of breaking away from, from my old country and from the idea of a hereditary monarchy, the idea of a hereditary aristocracy, and the idea that you know, that each generation should be a generation of, of merit and talent. is, I think that's a profoundly American idea. The whole idea of the American dream, I think, has elements of that kind of each generation being renewed and refreshed, if you like, and kind of against the idea of lineage and hereditary. And yet, weirdly, the U.S. has kind of introduced and stuck with this hereditary principle in quite an important area, which is college admissions to selective colleges. And so I think in that sense, it's, it's anachronistic in, in every, everywhere in the world now, but it seems like peculiarly odd that in America of all places, it's the place that's kept this hereditary principle in college admissions. So where do you think this normalization of nepotism here came from, especially in the college admissions process? Well, I think it, it's just, it be, it's become normal. Uh, if we go back in the history of legacy preferences to the US, you'll find that actually it had some pretty racist undertones. Originally, it was used as a way because to keep out the number of Jewish students who were getting into some of these selective colleges and was pretty effective uh, because very few of the Jewish students at that time had parents who even lived in the US, let alone were able to go to those colleges. And that's true, of course, today too for other immigrants. But I, I, over time, I think it just became the norm uh, and sort of unquestioned. What you find is that when you question it, you are. I'd never really thought about it, hmm. uh, and, and I think so. I think affair is just, just like that's the way things are, and you get used to it. Uh, everyone kind of does it, uh, and so it becomes normal. But the sort of less generous interpretation, I think, is that the people who benefit from it most are the people in positions of greatest power and privilege because they are the ones who went to those colleges, and so it's in their self-interest to keep this this uh, this idea. I mean, I, I in the article you kindly mentioned, I talked about the fact. My son applied to Oxford University back in the UK, and even though both his parents went there, he didn't get in. And it would have been unthinkable if it had helped him, if they'd even known that his parents had gone to that university. It really would have been a scandal to even think about that. And so, like, norms can shift. It was normal in Oxford and Cambridge, you know, a little while ago, more than 60 years ago. So norms shift. So just this norm uh, has, has been in place for a while. But as you said at the top of this, I, I, I really am sensing just in the few years I've been looking at this, the norm is beginning to shift. Yes. There's a spotlight, there's a spotlight being shone on it now, I think, in a way we haven't seen for a while. Well, just really quickly, how did the norm shift in the UK? Like, how did the trajectory kind of move in the opposite direction compared to the US? Well, after it's particularly after World War II, in the 1940s and 50s, there was a, a really just more of an egalitarian spirit after after the Second World War, and that had lots of implications for for UK politics and policy, including the birth of the welfare state and so on. But one of these ideas was this idea of sort of rule by rule by gentlemen, rule by toffs, rule by aristocrats, uh, was became became much less. Uh, acceptable to people. They really did want a more meritocratic or egalitarian society. And so suddenly people started looking at the institutions that were generating most of our elite and still do to this day, 
and I don't want to paint a sort of too rosy a picture of, of the UK. <laughs> sure. well, in our last two of our last three prime ministers went to Eton. So <laughs> as I, I don't want to be mistaken here for saying that the UK is some utopia. But but I, I, just in that post-war period, a lot of things changed. And one of them was this idea that just that it was sort of you know gentleman scholars, they were called. The idea that just because your family went to a college uh, should give you a bump. It just basically became socially unacceptable. Interesting, none of the laws changed. I mean, there was no law that changed. Mm. It was just the institutions themselves under this kind of public pressure eventually realized, yeah, we, we do need to change. Yeah, and that's what you say is happening in the U.S. with institutions. You note that Johns Hopkins abandoned legacy admissions in 2014. Mm. And, and you quote uh, Johns Hopkins President Ron Daniels, who says that legacy preference is immobility written as policy, preserving for children the same advantages enjoyed by their parents. It embodies in stark and indefensible terms inherited privilege in higher education. But besides Johns Hopkins, what other signs are you seeing? What else are universities, institutions, even uh, states doing? Well, you're saying, I think you mentioned at the top, some of the other colleges that are that are beginning to move. Um, and so there's just a bit of a domino maybe among some of these institutions. I do think privately, there's a lot of them, more of them than would say publicly would would actually be willing to move, but that's a trap because everybody else is still doing it. And so there may be just a tipping point where if you get enough of the colleges saying, okay, enough, right, we're done with this now that others will be, it'll be easier for others to follow suit. It's really hard if you've got your inbox and your voicemail filling up with angry messages from alums, mm. if they're also saying, well, none of the others are doing it, why are you doing it? And so I think there is a bit of a, what economists call a collective action problem, which is kind of doing it doing it together. But, but also I just think this issue of equity and fairness around college admissions is just generally more in the headlines and so as you mentioned before you're seeing some legislation it's you know currently not moving particularly but one in congress one in uh, one in the new york legislature i think one pending in connecticut and it, so, and what that's just telling me is that whether or not these bills actually pass that legislators are starting to pay attention they're starting to think oh, do we want to spend so much money on institutions that are practicing this hereditary principle increasingly i think legislators are finding it harder to to look voters in the face and say your, your tax dollars are subsidizing colleges that uh, that only a few people are going to get this hereditary principle in so i i think the tide is turning yes well <clears throat> certainly among our listeners we're hearing nancy writes for example Legacy admissions perpetuate inequality. And Wendy writes, it's long past time in terms of ending legacy admissions, which is also the title of your piece in The Atlantic, Why the U.S. Needs to End Legacy Admissions. And I want to ask you, uh, Richard Reeves, about Mm -hmm. the congressional bill. If you could just give us a little more information about the Mm so-called Fair College Admissions for Students Act, what would it do exactly? What would it effectively do is it would use the the pretty big carrot or stick, if you prefer, of federal funding uh, and say, look, it's perfectly okay for private private institutions can can do this if they want. You know, they can private institutions have a lot of freedom to have something like legacy preferences. But if you're going to rely on public support, public dollars uh, in one way or another, then we're going to insist that you get rid of this practice. So in a sense, what it's doing is saying we'll withhold funding. And that's a pretty common practice in lots of areas of policy. You seem saying um, housing policy, et cetera, where the federal government will say, well, look, we're, if we're going to fund or subsidize this activity, we're also going to attach some strings to it. And so what the bill would do is it would attach this string. It would say, in return for receiving federal support for your institution, you will have to abandon this practice. And so if you want to keep the practice, you're perfectly free to do so. 
but you won't be getting any checks sent to you anymore from the federal government. And so it's really kind of using that power. Now, that's a really big power because most institutions in one way that are heavily reliant on federal funding. And so in practice, that's a really big, that's a big stick. This is not a small threat were the bill to pass then. I think you'd see almost overnight, almost all the institutions would, would move away with the exception of some very, very small, very private ones, because the truth is very few colleges can survive without federal support. And so it's a much more aggressive bill than anything we've seen in Congress. Hmm. Well, I am so curious where California stands on this. Of course, California has a lot of competitive colleges and universities. And for that, I want to bring Scott Jashik into the conversation, editor of Inside Higher Ed, a news website that covers higher education. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. So just give us a quick reminder about where UCs and public colleges stand with regard to legacy admissions or, or whether they can even do it. Sure. So the public colleges don't do it in California, but the privates, Stanford does have uh, legacy admissions, and so do other privates, and they are uh, free to do so. And so talk a little bit about how Stanford, and I think USC is another big one, yeah. sort of justify legacy admissions. Well, I mean, they use, and, and it's the same arguments you hear elsewhere. They talk about the fact that having multiple generations who know that an institution is a good thing. Um, uh, they talk about how the numbers of students who actually get in because of the legacy is quite small. Uh, but even if that's true, I'm not sure it really answers the criticism uh, of legacy admissions. So when they say it's quite small, can you just give us a sense of what the proportions are, say, for example, at Stanford? Well, see, it's hard because some of the legacy admits would have gotten in anyway. Um, and the other thing is that if you go to Stanford, you are uh, likely to be a parent who can um, give a lot to your child. Um, and your child is thus more likely than other children to get into Stanford regardless of the legacy status. So it's, it's really hard to tell. But just straight up, if you had a parent go there or a relative go there... You are definitely more likely to get in, especially if you have a parent who is wealthy and gives a lot of money. And so in terms of less than 20% of students, less than 10% of students, I guess, yeah, go ahead. The thing that's, I just want to make that point that I made earlier, again, it's really hard to say how many students are getting in solely because they are a legacy sure. applicant, because legacy applicants tend to be good applicants. Um, and that's why you know, when people talk about doing away with legacy admissions, they're not banning legacies from Stanford. They're just uh, taking away their, their uh, privilege in getting in. Well, the reason that I ask is because you do see people, you know, basically posting figures. For example, I think it was in Richard Reeves' piece that they were saying that since Johns Hopkins implemented this, legacy admissions dropped, say, from like 15% to, to 4% or something along those lines. So that's why I was just wondering if there is a way to quantify. But you are raising a lot of really interesting points, Scott, that I would love to hear Richard speak on after the break. We're talking legacy admissions. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about legacy admissions when preference is given to college applicants who are related to an alum and how it's facing heightened scrutiny in the U.S. Richard Reeves, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, says it's time for the practice to end completely. We also have Scott Jashik with us, an editor with Inside Higher Ed, a news website covering higher education, talking about how California handles legacy admissions. And of course, you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What do you think? Should applicants be given preference in the admissions process if their family member went there? Has legacy admissions, has this practice played a role in your life? And how do you feel about it today? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Richard Reeves, just before the break, Scott was talking a little bit about sort of the difficulty in really quantifying um, who our legacy admits and, and even sort of alluding to the fungibility of these numbers. What do you think about that? Scott's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the problem is we, we don't know for sure how much difference it makes. So we can give these raw numbers. You can see, the, for example, the admissions rate for those with the legacy, legacy are three times higher at places like Georgetown, Princeton, you know, Harvard, and so on. But as Scott says, the trouble is that those tend to be very well-qualified candidates anyway. And so how much of that difference is a result of the legacy thing? We just don't know. So there have been some, there's been some good studies which have estimated it on the old SAT score. It's you know, somewhere between 100 and 160 points on the old SAT scale bump. That's, that's not nothing. And as you alluded to, Mina, when Hopkins got rid of the practice, this is in some ways the best test of all. And originally, he didn't even tell anyone they'd done it. So for a few years, Hopkins just stopped doing it, but didn't announce it. Uh, and you did see this significant drop in the percentage of people who are legacies. And so that's a really good, that's a good trial, because that's, that's real world. And so what that tells us is that, you know, there were a lot of people who were getting in before because of legacies who are not getting in now. Mm. But it is difficult. The institutions themselves are very reluctant to share the data which would allow us to answer this question up to social scientific standards. Um, but but it's, so it's, it's hard to know how much it matters, but it clearly does matter in the way that Scott just identified. So then the only question is, how much does it matter? But really, we shouldn't just get away from the fact that should it matter at all? And if you take my position, then you know the only, the only number that's acceptable for the bump you get from having parents that were there is zero. <laughs> so, right, so if it's a bit more than that or a lot more than that is kind of gets you away from the point of principle, which is that the hereditary principle shouldn't apply. Right. Well, Scott, California passed a law in 2019 requiring schools basically that receive state financial aid to disclose how many applicants are accepted through legacy admissions. Can you talk about what kind of impact that's had? 
Sure. I mean, you know, it's extremely hard to get into the University of California. And that's one of the important things to say, because just as it's very hard to get into Stanford Um, and to get into UC, you need to meet certain qualifications to be in the top eighth of high school graduates. So they have to disclose if they are using um, uh, special things to, to let in those students. Generally, they are not. Now, Colorado passed a law last year that said that they were banning legacy admissions in public colleges, not private ones in the mm. state. And in the, at the University of Colorado, um, I talked recently to the chancellor there, and he said that he gets a few calls, but he's fine with it um, because a lot of people want to go to the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, but, you know, they, it's fine because they just say, you know, sorry, I can't help you. Well, we've got calls coming in, and let me go to Daniel in Sacramento. Hi, Daniel. Hi. What's um, on your mind? Yeah. So I, I uh, uh, <clears throat> might have had the opportunity to uh, uh, cash in on the legacy uh, thing. Uh, I've had uh, uh, almost everybody in my family went to Harvard. Uh, I, in one of my uh, ancestors was president of Harvard and so on. But instead, I chose to go to a little private college up in Maine uh, called Bowdoin College for a variety of other reasons. Um, uh, And I know from this private institution that legacy there is important because it promotes uh, endowments very much like it does at Harvard and Yale and, and, and so on. And, of course, here, Stanford and so on. Um, So there is a whole cadre of, uh, um, you know, high-level colleges that are private that really rely on this interplay of legacy with endowment Mm. that is crucial to their existence and their high academic achievement levels. Because without this financial uh, influx through, through endowments, these institutions might not be at the caliber that they are. And for instance, let me give you an example. Bowdoin, which is this tiny little college, puts out a Rhodes Scholar almost every year. You understand? Here's an institution of 1,000, uh, well, now almost 1,500 students that is able to produce a Rhodes Scholar yearly. And you say that that is related to donations. Well, it it comes from having extremely uh, high-level teachers and faculty and, and, you know, a reputation for uh, the work they do. They have uh, a—it's an undergraduate institution, but they also offer master's degrees. And that—none of that would be possible— if they didn't have the endowment that they have. Well, Daniel, and thanks. So I, I know what you're raising is certainly something I'm sure, Richard Reeves, you have heard. What do you think of what Daniel is trying to say about the importance of mm. promoting endowments through this? Well, it is, it is an argument that's, that's, that's frequently made. I mean, um, I, I have much more sympathy for the argument when it's a small institution. I think you know, last, obviously, before the stock market crash, but at the end of last year, I think Harvard's endowment was over $50 billion dollars. 
So, you know, it's not begging bowl time for these, a lot of these institutions that practice legacy preferences, but it becomes an empirical question. I actually just discovered practical, is it true? And actually there's some quite good studies that look at institutions that, that stop uh, legacy preferences. And it doesn't appear to have very much impact on giving. Uh, and so that is an argument that's made, but it doesn't appear to be true. And places like MIT still do pretty well. Hopkins didn't see any drop in its donations. A lot of schools in Texas didn't see a drop in their donations. And so it doesn't really seem to have that much effect on giving, which is one of the things that people are concerned about. Now, I would argue, even if it does, that it's still not justified, but it doesn't seem as if that's, that's actually true in practice. And people still giving. In fact, some places like MIT and others, and I think Hopkins a bit now too, almost become quite proud of the fact that they don't have legacy preferences. And there is now a new campaign, Leave Your Legacy, which I mentioned in my article, which encourages people to refuse to donate to their institutions until they give up legacy preferences. Mm. So using the money the other way around and just saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to donate to you if you're going to continue with this practice. And so I think it can cut both ways. And as the if the mood swings against legacies, then I think if anything, it might start to have a negative effect on giving rather than the positive one that they claim, but I don't see in the data. Well, the other thing we hear is that legacy admissions help attract donations. I mean, Stephanie writes, why do you think alumni give money? This won't end at selective private schools with big endowments, but that it helps attract donations that will actually offset grants to low-income students, for example. And I think, Scott Jashik, this is an argument that even USC has made with regard to how important attracting donations are in terms of creating a more diverse, equitable, and range of socioeconomic uh, experiences that students entering their school have? Well, obviously, it's very important to attract donations. I don't think there's evidence, though, that eliminating legacy uh, preferences would have any real impact on donations. Um, uh, as, as Richard said, it, it hasn't at MIT, at Caltech. It's another place that doesn't have legacy admissions. Um, and uh, and you know, people continue to give. What happens is you might lose a particular donor whose son or daughter doesn't get in, but that will be very small. And, um, and people give for far more important reasons than to get their kid in. Well, let me put another argument that has been raised in defense of legacy practices, and that it's that college... Uh, Colleges are starting to admit more diverse student bodies, um, which would include first generation, low income students, black, indigenous, Latinx students, or other students of color, Richard Reeves, and that this could be a really key benefit that could help them. And so as as campuses start to diversify, you're now taking it away. <laughs> I, I do hear that argument quite a bit. I'm sure that Scott does, too. And there is there is something odd about this, which is that I think if you're from the perspective of, say, you're a student of color, you're, you were a student of color, you were one of the first to go. And then just at the moment, perhaps when your own children might benefit from this practice, it gets taken away. So I do, I, I understand that argument, but I think the, my response to that is that first of all, we're talking about very small numbers of people, almost by definition, there aren't that many uh, children of alums who will benefit from this practice who are black or Hispanic say, because so few black or Hispanic students were at those institutions, especially a generation ago. Got to remember, it takes at least a generation. And so actually the, the, the majority of people who benefit from legacy preferences are going to remain for the foreseeable future white. That's particularly true for Hispanic students, by the way, not least because of uh, the patterns of immigration that we've seen. It's really very unlikely that a Hispanic student applying to these colleges will have had a parent 
at one of these colleges. And so I get it, but it seems to me that if the goal is to increase the racial and ethnic diversity of these institutions, which is a goal I strongly support, there are much more direct ways of doing that than by waiting a generation to give a slight bump to the children of the handful of black and Hispanic students that happened to be at that college 30 years earlier. So I think it's a worthwhile goal, but this is a really, really long way around and an unfair way in the end of getting at the goal that you could just get at more directly. If you want more black and Hispanic students at your institution, then admit more black and Hispanic students on other grounds and don't restrict that to those who happen to have had parents who are at the college. Well, I want to bring Jasmine Green into the conversation, a Harvard sophomore who wrote a very honest op-ed in the Harvard Crimson titled To My Black Legacy Child. Jasmine Green, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You wrote about how the movement toward abandoning legacy admissions to make the admissions process more equitable was actually bringing up some mixed feelings for you initially. And and I'm so curious, what were you grappling with? Yes, for sure. Um, It was very difficult, I think, for me to write the article that I did because I was thinking of myself and my parents and my grandparents and just other like black students at Harvard who don't have a long lineage of education they can trace back, at least for myself, like um, none of my grandparents graduated college. My parents were the first in their families to do so. And I'm the first person to ever attend an Ivy League institution in my family. So I was thinking about like that I can give Um, some kind of tool of success to my child and their child and their child. And like, I can be the one to kind of like sow that seed if I wanted to, because I will be a Harvard alum, but also at the same time grappling with the fact that legacy um, admissions put students of color specifically and low-income students and the intersection between that at such a disadvantage in the application process and not only in the application process, but, um, when they are at Harvard and they're trying to navigate this institution that is disproportionately wealthy um, as a low income student, as a student of color, I was thinking of like how my own personal experience has been in that way. Mm -hmm. And it's almost, I was thinking it was almost selfish for me to force that down the road with my own child who would have an easier time it would probably be of a higher income bracket because just statistically legacy students are wealthier on average but there will always still be first gen students and low-income students who are at a disadvantage because of the other side the other large like wealth percentage of ivy league institutions it sounds like you eventually landed then on the question of legacy admissions. I think you called it a poisoned gift. Can you describe sort of where you are on it now? Of course. I um, also want to preface that my opinions are my own and yes. not a reflection of um, the okay. Crimson or the Crimson's headboard. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so it, it, all, it ties back into that. I'm thinking of myself, I'm thinking of my family and my child. And um, I wrote about like the the history of Harvard as far as like racial discrimination goes. Harvard then started admitting black students in large numbers until the 1970s when Harvard students, when black Harvard students were finally able to attend the college, they were discriminated against. Um, there's a, a wonderful piece in the Crimson um, about like the history of the Ku Klux Klan at Harvard that I implore everyone to read, it was wonderful. Um, and so, and then currently that hasn't stopped black students and students of color in general are still um, 
lacking the respect and recognition of the university, in my opinion. There's been a long 50, 60 year push for a multicultural ethnics or a multicultural center and ethnic studies that has not been yet fulfilled. Um, there have been teachers who have had like racial scandals who are still allowed to like um, perform and teach at the university um, and just a, a host of other issues that almost makes it feel like the school doesn't care so much about um, students of color and black students specifically. And so it's like, if this is the one thing that I can give my child, and I know that my child, wealthy or not, would have a, a probably a difficult time navigating Harvard just because of the environment that is here, at least I'd be able to give them a degree that sets them up for success as an adult, at the very least, even if it's one that they have to struggle to get. Um, while they're here, at least they'd have an easier time attaining that because they're a legacy student. And at least they'd have a boost of like the social, the socioeconomic ladder once they graduated. And that wouldn't stop with my child. It would go on for generations. And I know that I could be the one to start that, even though I never received that um, because of the history of this country and how Harvard is, is um, very dynamically involved with that. Well, Jasmine, I appreciate you sharing sort of the process that you've been going through in terms of thinking about this. Jasmine, um, yeah. Yes. The, oh, the process. Sorry. <laughs> so I really appreciate you you sharing that. And mm -hmm. so thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jasmine Green is a Harvard sophomore and uh, also the associate editorial editor of the Harvard Crimson. Her pieces to my black legacy child. Richard Reeves, I was struck by, in the congressional bill that we talked about earlier, that there was actually an exemption um, for historically black colleges uh, and uh, other institutions that uh, they describe as, quote, minority serving institutions, that they are basically waived from the legacy preference ban. What do you think of that? Well, I understand it because we have such we have such weight of uh, racial inequality in the U.S. And again, it's something that, that, that again that a way in which the U.S. is e exceptional in a in a really unfortunate way. And so, I can totally see, and I think actually the personal story that Jasmine just told too really speaks to this. Like anything that would help, say in this case, black kids more get more black students into these colleges, it's is hard to give up. Um, especially kind of during this transition period. But so I understand the argument for it, but it does, again, it feels like we're just trying to sort of tweak a broken system in a somewhat more equitable direction rather than just make the system more equitable. So in a world where we're going to have legacy preferences, I can totally see why you'd want to make sure that they were certainly not uh, in, in some way exclusively only for white students. But I think we've got to get to a point where it's a world where we don't have that at all. And in the end, I think we want to get to a world where we definitely want more diversity of all kinds, but that shouldn't be dependent on where your, how your parents did. Like birth is the lottery. And I think that in the end, that should apply across races. And so, I mean, I was really, I mean, Crimson's been great on this, by the way. I know Jasmine made the point about intersecting race and class. You know, 15% of Harvard students come from the top 1% of the income distribution. Two thirds of them come from top 20% of the income distribution. So it's an incredibly, as we, we all know these numbers, right? And we're picking on Harvard now a bit just because we're talking about it. And so I think the question then becomes is like, don't we want more kids of all races from lower down the socioeconomic scale? And that goes directly against legacies. We're talking about the practice of legacy admissions at American colleges and universities, and we'll have more after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Richard Reeves, who wrote a piece in The Atlantic titled Why the U.S. Needs to End Legacy Admissions. It included the line, quote, As a transplant from England, I've been repeatedly struck by the weakness of norms against nepotism in the American elite, particularly the continued practice of legacy admissions. You, our listeners, are weighing in on this question, too. Uh, You're weighing in with Richard Reeves and with Scott Jashik, an editor at Inside Higher Ed, a news website that covers higher education and has been talking about how it's handled in California. And so my listeners in California, Kevin, what would you like to say? Hey, so um, I I actually did my uh, uh, schooling up in Washington, but I I was a legacy, a white legacy, and um, I had been a little uh, family pressured into going to college, which I I was a pretty good student in high school, and and that was all fine. But then I got to law school, and um, same institution, I legacied my way in. Uh, was not an outstanding student for going to law school. And um, looking back now, it it really seems to me like that uh, opportunity could have gone to other students who were more deserving, uh, much more motivated. And I feel like uh, the idea of uh, legacy students is uh, not that great. Um, I feel like the whole thing should be done away with. I mean, I, I certainly didn't want to go to law school. I I didn't deserve to go to law school and that opportunity really was taken away from somebody else. And I I feel like endowments and donations aside, institutions that rely solely on those um, should probably find another way to go about their business because I mean, just relying on those, I I feel like that does create a different kind of um, mindset for those students who, who get in relying solely on the legacies um, and they, they might be well qualified, they might be motivated, but if they are, then they certainly can get in uh, without relying on like parents or relatives. Well, Kevin, thank you for calling us and sharing those thoughts. Kevin from Sacramento. Let me go next to Mark in Dublin. Hi, Mark. I went to college in the uh, 1970s. I was a non-legacy uh, admit to, uh, uh, to Stanford. Um, I don't know that with my record now, uh, it would be particularly e- even easy for me to get in, but I had checked all the boxes back then, and you know I was uh, you know top ten percent of my high school class, and you know AP and three point eight GPA and all that kind of thing. Now, interestingly enough, I had a uh, I had a, um, a potential for a legacy admission to medical school at Temple in 
in Philadelphia where my father went, and I didn't particularly want to go there, and I just remember that it was the worst interview that I ever had, and I, I, was, I, was, I was sure that when I left that I wasn't going to get in. So these things kind of have a way of working themselves out. By the same token, I think the um, major universities now have endowments that are so large uh, that uh, they can now admit students without really uh, even thinking about uh, uh, their ability to pay, figuring that they can admit now the, the best students who will then go on to, uh, you know, in, in their you know, later successful lives, go on to make uh, significant contributions to the school. So it's interesting how, how this question has evolved over the last, uh, uh, you know, 40 years for me. Well, Mark, appreciate you sharing your story as well. Um, there are a couple of things that are coming to mind as I'm hearing these listeners share their stories, Richard Reeves. One of them was a, a point uh, that our Sacramento caller was making earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, these children of donors and alumni, they could be excellent and well-qualified, but they don't need extra help in the competitive college admissions process and could probably go elsewhere. But that was also something that I heard as, almost a counter-argument against focusing on legacy admissions that really, for these kids, if legacy admissions were done away with, uh, they would just go to a different elite institution where there wasn't a family lineage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, gr a great point. And it is made the other way around, uh, it, which is like, is it really that big a deal? It's not as if these, it's, it's not as if the advantage that legacies get is so great that if they don't get into this elite institution, then they're only going to be able to go to a much less selective one. They're not going to go to, to the community college around the corner, by and large. They're going to go to another highly selective institution. Maybe not quite so selective, like maybe a notch down the ladder, but they're not exactly going to tumble down to the bottom of the education ladder. That's certainly true. For me, that argument goes the other way. It's like, well, in that case, it's not that high a price to pay. I mentioned you know, in my article earlier that my own son back in the UK didn't get into Oxford, but he got into Exeter, which is an extremely good college. So in the US context, like I didn't get into Harvard or Yale, but I got into, I, I don't know. I won't, I won't say whatever, whatever the, the <laughs> yeah. equivalent is. Right? <laughs> You're going to have controversy after this. No, I know. <laughs> gonna get your, 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 your board will light up if I get the name wrong. But, but the point, I just think, so it's a small price we're asking people to pay. And I do think it comes to this point that Kevin made really thoughtfully, and it's really not interesting to hear him say this, is that sometimes we say, where's the harm? I get a slight advantage. I get to go to the same college my parents went to. Where's the harm? And he identified the harm, which is that unknown person who doesn't get to get in because you did. You are displacing somebody else. But because you don't know who that person is, and you'll never know, and they'll never know, it's like an invisible victim. The victim of this is always invisible. And probably that other person will go to a pretty good college too. But it has quite a corrosive effect, I think, this idea that you can elbow somebody else out of a slot that they would otherwise have got because of the blood running through your veins. It really is corrosive to the idea of fairness. And he's, Kevin's quite right. You know, He went, which meant someone else didn't go. There is someone paying a price here, and we shouldn't flinch from that, from that fact. Well, Celeste writes, I don't think people should be given the privilege to attend a university because they have a parent that went there or siblings or if their father was a professor there. It should be all on merit. Scott Jashik, so, okay, our listeners are expressing that they do not believe that someone should be able to attend a university because a relative went there. Another thing that's definitely coming up in a lot of this is you know, the importance of attracting donations. And I'm just wondering, is there a movement in California to also look at, you know, banning admissions uh, based on whether or not a parent, maybe they didn't attend the school, but they made a lot of donations to it? 
Um, well, there, there is legislation that would uh, that would restrict uh, the a decision made uh, in a six month period uh, after a donation. Um, but the thing is, there are really interesting examples elsewhere um, I, that that deal with this. McDaniel College, for instance, has legacy preferences in uh, financial aid. They give thirty thousand dollars a year to every student who's, an, who's uh, a child of an alumnus or the child of a K-12 teacher or a veteran. And that sort of is changing the equation a little bit at McDaniel uh, over who gets help hmm. and who should get help. Well, uh, let me go next to Donna in Redlands, California. Hi, Donna. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. What would you like to say? Well, I agree very much with your uh, guest that legacy preferences should be eliminated across the board, private colleges, public colleges, uh, all of them. But along with that, I suggest that all preferences should be eliminated. There should be no legacy preferences, no uh, racial or gender preferences, no preferences for or against wealth or poverty hmm. many of the i would eliminate them all and have students admitted especially to graduate school based uh, college and graduate school based strictly on intellectual merit if well, you will donna thanks i imagine you've heard that richard reeves and mm. what do you think of what donna is saying here well it's a system that that many places are much more accustomed to, of course, including where I come from in the UK, where really it is basically about academic levels of preparation. That's really the only thing that counts. Is as I, I feel like a purely meritocratic system, just on merit, is a, is a very kind of attractive idea on its face. I think the problem with that is that we know that the ability to perform well on the tests, get a good GPA, et cetera, is, is highly related to the parents you, you happen to have. And so, Donna, I, I think intellectually it's an attractive idea, but in practice, if you just do it purely on merit, and if merit is measured in terms of things like SAT and GPA, then you have a system that perpetuates itself. And so I, I actually think that taking into account things like how poor your background was or what your school was like is perfectly appropriate and increasingly that is true in places like the UK and so someone who has like an SAT score of 1300 who came from a really 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 disadvantaged background seems to me to be someone with more intellectual potential than someone who got 1320 from a very rich background and so I think it's perfectly appropriate to take background into account from a socioeconomic background perspective and I also think it's appropriate to have policies that do promote deliberately promote racial and ethnic diversity. What we're talking about in legacy preferences is a really weird kind of preference that basically increases the chances of rich white kids getting in by and large. So that's a very, very odd thing, odd policy to have given that one of the problems we have with the higher education system is that it's full, especially at a selective level of overwhelmingly rich and predominantly white students. So it's not a, we're not having a problem getting rich white kids into these colleges. So why give them an extra bump? I don't think the same argument applies when we're talking about kids from poor backgrounds or kids of color. Let me go to Josh in San Francisco. Hi, Josh. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. I, you, you touched on this a little bit while I was on hold, but my issue isn't so much with legacy um, admissions, but I mean, that could play a part. My big issue was with legacy scholarships. 
So in my school, uh, legacy applicants got an automatic scholarship, and these folks were predominantly from wealthy white families who didn't really need help paying for college as much as other folks like myself were taking out loans to go. And you also touched on, you know, these legacy uh, admissions practices attract donations. I also just saw that as a way for wealthy parents to make tax-deductible donations to the school that would go into a legacy scholarship that automatically went, part of it went to their kids. So they're able to make like tax-deductible um, tuition payments for their children, unlike others. Well, Josh, thanks for sharing that experience. Interestingly, Daniel writes, I remember in 1974 when I was accepted to Georgetown, not just Georgetown, my father's alma mater, but to the School of Foreign Service, which took only 100 applicants each year. The acceptance letter read, We are proud that you will be joining the ranks of your father at Georgetown. We reserve 10% of the incoming freshman class for alumni children. When I spent the summer begging for financial aid, they kept implying, but your father went here. I did not go to Georgetown. I went to the University of New Mexico, where I learned the life lesson that the world will direct you where you need to go. And Joel tweets, having lived in the Southeast, going to your parents' alma mater wasn't a nice idea. It was mandatory. I worked with a few people who gave their kids two options. Go to the University of Georgia and we pay for everything or go somewhere else and get nothing. Uh, the fact that that was a sure thing, I guess, is in many ways what we're talking about. Richard Reeves, we're talking about legacy admissions with uh, Richard V. Reeves of the Brookings Institution, also directs the program there that's called the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. Scott Jashik is with us, editor of Inside Higher Ed. And you, our listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. All right. So, Richard, what do you think needs to change? There is a movement, of course. You say institutions are taking this on. Congress is potentially taking this on. But you talk about, and you've alluded to this multiple times, you've talked about a need to shift norms. Can you talk about why you see it so much in that category and, and how we go about shifting norms that are quite entrenched? Yeah, I think I think that is really where the action is. I think that the laws and the and the rules in the institutions will, will largely follow what's seen as acceptable. And so, there's a situation right now where a lot of people will say, "Well, you know, I don't necessarily like it, but you know, everyone does it." Uh, and I think the question then is, how do we change that? Right? How do we change a situation where it's like, "I don't like the system, but you know, you got to play the game as it's written," but actually can recognize, well, we can rewrite the rules of the game and particularly around these kind of cultural norms. I, I've written elsewhere about things like internships and so on too. And for this to really become something that you don't do, that's just not done, something that actually would be a source of shame rather than pride to say that you played, you'd used your networks or your own position to get your kid a place they wouldn't otherwise have gotten at a college. And so I do think this is a mindset shift. I think it, you know this conversation has been really helpful just to think about the kind of culture of this. Because in the end, the leaders of these institutions and our legislators, they can only go about as fast as I think public opinion and particularly public opinion among those who benefit most from this system. And the problem is most of the people who benefit most are think tankers, journalists, politicians, et cetera, those who are in these positions of power. And that's really where I think we need the, the culture norm to shift. So we need to look ourselves in pretty hard in the mirror and think, I say, look, if we don't think this is fair, this, if the game is rigged, even if it's rigged in our favor, we shouldn't play. And that's really the norm shift we need. It's a mood shift. And then, then then we'll see real change. Do you think the Operation Varsity Blues scandal is helping that along? Mm. I mean, it really did bring to light yeah, this question of who gets in and why. 
Yes. Um, yeah, go right ahead. I think it was, I mean, I do, I think it was just, uh, it was incredibly helpful to, I think, just illuminating some of these issues. And and for me, what it did, and we've had some really interesting conversations earlier in this call about donations, even faculty preferences and so on. What it did was just like a big bright light. And what Varsity Blues did was it showed a lot of people who really genuinely, some of them couldn't really see what they'd done wrong. They kind of got that they'd bent the rules but the way they all talked about it was, well, it's a corrupt system anyway. So like, what did I do wrong? And the truth was all they did was cross that line of legality. But just because something's legal doesn't mean it's ethical or right. And so I think what it did was it really made people think, okay, so it's bad to pay someone to get, it's bad to do that. But what about buying a place? Or what about a hereditary principle? Or what about because you play a different sport or whatever? Are those legitimate? And so I think it's put this ethical question mark over the whole process of college admissions in a way that I think is one of the reasons why we're now having this conversation. Yes. And certainly, Scott, the the bill that we talked about where it asked schools to disclose what proportion of applicants are legacy applicants was an outgrowth of Operation Varsity Blues, for which California had a pretty prominent role. Um, So we talked about where California kind of is. Where do you think the state's going with regard to this question about equity and admissions? Yeah, go ahead. The the state may well um, legislate, but I am somewhat skeptical that Congress will um, on the national level. Um, In New York and Connecticut, where there are bills, there is fierce opposition from powerful private colleges. Um, And so I think think Richard is correct that it requires a real attitude adjustment from the rich and powerful. I'm not sure they're ready to make it yet. Well, as you said, Richard, there are powerful forces that are very invested in legacy or donor-related admissions um, to elite schools. And so as much as you've also said this may be the time that um, legacy admissions may finally be on its way out, it sounds like that comes with a big question mark. I think that's right. And it comes to this deeper question that, you, that you've alluded to, I think, a number of times and that Scott just talked about, which is, it is difficult to change a system where some of the most powerful people in a position to make those changes actually benefit from it, and particularly their children benefit from it. And like every parent wants the best for their kids. And if you have a current system that gives your kid an advantage, at the margins, maybe, but it gives them an advantage in a competitive labor market and a competitive education system, it's really, really hard. To give that up and so it really does become an ethical question which is how much do we believe all these words that we're saying about equity and justice because i think it's interesting how even some of the even some of the most liberal people that i know will still support legacy preferences and so they're very committed to social justice and equity but this is a real test of that because the real test of whether or not you believe in a more socially just society is whether or not you're willing to give anything up for it we this is a small thing we'll have to give up We have so little time, but I am so struck by the fact that you direct the future of the middle class initiative. And I do wonder if you see this as connected to the strength of the middle class. I I do. And and, and in particular, what what I'm concerned about is that growing numbers of middle class Americans uh, and working class Americans, and this is based on the opinion polling we can see, they don't see these elite institutions as places for them or for their kids. They see them as for other people. They see them as institutions that educate the children of today's elite rather than create tomorrow's elite. That's a huge problem for our society. Richard Reeves, Scott Jashik, thank you to you both. Thank you, listeners. And thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment with help from Stephen Chemileski. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. 
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.